Wombat, say hello, Wombat. Hey, it's the Wombat. There it is. Hey, uh, welcome back, Wombat. Uh, this is WOZO 103.9 LPFM live right here in Knoxville, Tennessee. And if you're listening to us uh, on the FM waves, you can also listen to us uh, when you get out of the area by listening to WOZORadio.com. Uh, this is a live atheist call-in radio show, and we'll be talking about atheism, free thought, rational thought, humanism, and the sciences. Uh, conversely, we'll also be talking about religion, religious faiths, uh, holy books, gods, and superstition. Let me adjust my volume here just a little bit. Okay. And despite what Steve Martin would have you think, there are an awful lot of atheist songs, and you'll be hearing some of them right here on this program and generally on this station uh, as they are in rotation. I'll also be talking about atheism, uh, rational groups that are here in Knoxville, and how you can connect with them. Also, did you know that we have an atheist call-in TV show broadcasting here in Knoxville? Did you know that one about... What? Why don't you ever tell me anything? It could happen, and it's been happening for almost seven years now. Uh, that's right, and we'll be talking about that, too, a little later in the show and tell you how you can listen to it and watch it. Um, the call-in number here, if you'd like to uh, call in and uh, co- <laughs> co-author the show with us, I guess, I'd be on the show with us and have a part in the dialogue, the conversation. 865 Five nine three seven eight six five three 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 five nine three seven eight six five three 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 five nine three seven. We'll mention that number again later in the show. Uh, Wombat, you have a topic for us tonight. I think it was Riv's topic, but he's a little late. So if you wouldn't mind, would you bring it up for us? Sure, not a problem. Uh, you know, Doubter Five, I'm not a perfect person. As much as a lot of people would like to believe so. I'm not perfect. <laughs> I'm willing to admit it. I talked to your mom. I'm humble she said you were. I talked to Mama Wombat. <laughs> Don't talk about my mom. All right. Anyway, so uh, the thing is, sometimes the things that I, I think happened to me may not have happened the same way that I memorized it. And by that, I mean my memory can be a little bit faulty. And I'm, I'm a young guy. I, I, I know some stuff. I went to school for a while, but there'll be times where I'll be in a classroom and I'm like teaching some kids a little bit 
Uh, I like to volunteer with my time. And I'm writing down the word, the letter, or the word uh, tomorrow on the marker board. And I'll get to T-O-M-M. And then after there, I don't know. And the whole class is just looking at me and I'm thinking, oh, geez. All right, Timmy, you get up here. Spell the rest of this word tomorrow. You have fun. So it just calls to the topic of the show of how much can you trust your memories or memories, the song. Uh, really, you know, there's a lot of things, for example, that are written down in a holy textbook. Uh, particularly, let's, we're going to be talking about the Bible today. So like the Sermon on the Mount, I'm pretty sure none of the people who are listening to that speech were doing so with a notepad and a pen at hand. Uh, pens were really, really, <laughs> no. And if less of Jesus was talking very, very slowly, because it's hard for me to even keep up with people when I'm typing, let alone writing by hand, there's going to be a lot of memory recall that occurs after the speech, even if it's something they've heard multiple times. I've heard lots of jokes. Uh, my, some of my favorite comedic albums I've heard maybe about a hundred times, and I still can't rephrase the joke to a person verbatim, and that's the crux of what I'm talking about today. How well can we trust our own memories? And if it's not 100%, how seriously are we taking, or how, what level of skepticism can we approach things that are supposedly written verbatim in the Bible? What do you think? Right, especially when they weren't written down for um, at least dozens, if not hundred years later. Yeah, oh my gosh, yeah. And the people that were listening to the to the Sermon on the Mount, they most of them, if not all of them, were illiterate anyway. They they might remember it, but they might not. And and if you get a hundred people together, they'll have twenty different versions of what he said over that what two three hours that he stood talking. So it's it's an incredible leap of logic to say that the the Bible is the inspired word of God if we we don't really know who wrote anything in it. Uh, we have no no reason to believe any particular person wrote it, um, wrote on it or in it. Um, what can we say about that? Hello, Riv. Oh, Riv's here. Actually, interesting point. This is actually uh, Riv's topic. While Riv sets this up, uh, let me just continue to like get this home. So, just in case if anyone's listening and they're thinking Sermon on the Hill, what's that? Because maybe they maybe they are 100% Christian. Maybe they're not a Christian but they just don't know what we're specifically referring to. In the Gospel of Matthew, I think from chapters 5 through 7, there's a series of discourses that he gives as a direct speech given by Jesus Christ. And uh, from chapters 5 through 7, it's more or less, if you look through that, it's a lot of red text, if you have one of those books that have wherever Jesus talks is in red. But it's where uh, Jesus is more or less outlining his moral philosophy. And a lot of the things that we take for granted or uh, things that we we put into our pockets as Christians, if you're Christian, as saying, hey, you know, the most important thing is the golden rule or the most important thing is, you know, God. And if you're a camel or if there's like the path to heaven is so hard that like you have to basically give up all of your love for money and stuff like that. And then only focus on a life of virtue to get yourself into heaven. All of those things come from that Sermon on the Mount speech. It's one of the most famous speeches that is in the Bible today. And the thing is, there's a lot of text there. And the concept is, how do you remember all three chapters of that speech to put down verbatim? 
if you are, in fact, a person who is writing this down slowly? Is this something that you memorize? And the, the weird part is that Matthew didn't actually write the book Matthew. Most theologians will agree with the statement that the guys who are written, who are stated or quoted as being the authors of those books typically aren't. Those books were written maybe about 140 years after the fact. So you have this other concept of, okay, so 140 cent or 100, uh, a century and a half ago, this guy said something on the top of a hill. What did he say specifically? Well, here it is. And you start writing it down. How well can we trust that uh, that rendition of what the events that took place? And how good are we if we had to write down a speech that our homeroom teacher from back in high school said maybe about 10 or 15 years ago? Can we do it as accurately? And should we have any skepticism? Or even after we got home that same day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we know how to write, and read, and write. True. I, can, I mean... It's it's a leap of faith, really, when you think about it. Right. Of course, the uh, the the general Christian apologetic is that every word in the Bible is God breathed. In other words, it was written by fallible humans, but they were inspired by God to actually write the truth and have every single word correct. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's a little hard to, for for me anyway to uh, to believe. Oh, thank you. No, it becomes interesting. I think if people claim that, well, of course, everyone's susceptible to the game of telephone. I mean, that's you know, to air is the human. I mean, memory, it's its not perfect. But this book has it right. I mean, that becomes a bit, I think, nonsensical. I couldn't agree more, especially when you throw miracles in the mix. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so what I'd really like to get down to is what exactly is a memory? Uh, Riv, you were talking to me about this earlier before the show. What is a memory? How do we keep them? And why can they be valuable over time? Well, to my best understanding, a memory is basically just a layer of uh, essentially electronic signature over synapses in the brain. They build up over time. And every time we do something, we reinforce it, reinforce it, reinforce it. But memory isn't perfect. Um, over time, we'll find there's the, there's the Mandela effect, right? Over time, you'll find that uh, if you seem to recall something so perfectly, it actually wasn't that way at all. You know, it's not... Memory isn't a perfect observation mechanism. It's a uh, it's a combination of of composites based on our perception of reality. So it's it's subjective. You know, people will see something because they want to see something. You know, you have uh, what's the term? Uh, something about reasoned. Reasoned expectation. Well, there's that. There's uh, enforced, encouraged. I I wrote it down, but it's in the quote that I made. If we're looking for something, we'll find it. So when when you're going back to interpret scripture or something, if you're looking to find a pattern, you'll probably find it, and that's that's part of the problem. Because it's what you're looking for. Right. And if you find something close, you'll say, ah, that's it. Yeah, well, this must mean this. I mean, it's so close. I mean, yeah, sure, infallible, fallible, they're bitten by men, but this this seems the gist of what they're getting at. So you just take it and run with it. Uh, And then memory, of course, you know, it's it's fallible. I mean, in the court of law, right? We don't, we we need evidence. We've we've now ruled out, took us a while, we eventually ruled out special evidence, and now to the point where eyewitness testimony isn't, you know, as, as credential. 
It's what is the evidence? What is the physical evidence that you can't reasonably refute in a case? Um, but somehow we don't hold the same standards to pick religion. It's interesting. That's all I had in that one. Sorry. Well, it's true, obviously. Um, there was a, I'm trying to look it up right now, uh, there was a study that was done back of children back in the 70s uh, who uh, the the people, uh, adult sexual abuse of children was a real big topic back in the 70s and they had some children that they brought in and they talked to them about it to see if uh, they had um, been abused at home. Well, the thing about it is they didn't know it, but they were implanting images and, and memories in these children's minds as they were doing the process. Uh, they hadn't come to the point of understanding what was going on, really, psychologically. But uh, several people went to jail. Some people were charged and, and sent to prison. Uh, it was a major problem back then, and finally they understood what was happening and, and uh, stopped doing it, which is good. Uh, there's a there's an article that I wrote on digitalfreethought.com, the blog called uh, False Memories and Miracles. If you get a chance to go to digitalfreethought.com and look it up, uh, I think it will be very uh, edifying. Um, I'm looking it up right now because I want to get the name of that study. Uh, go Good. ahead, Tago. Uh, so with regard to memory, there's a lot of times where I can imagine things that occurred to me in the past, maybe while I was growing up. And I can say, hey, I remember playing video games with my uh, best friend, who was also my neighbor at the time. And if I wanted to, I can imagine us playing in front of a television screen to the point where it's almost so real that it's nearly tangible. And I could see the color of my best friend's shirt, and it's like red. But I could just as easily remember the whole thing and change the color of their shirt to blue. I can consciously make that decision and change a fact. Or I can change the game that we were playing. Or I can change whose house we were playing in. I have a malleable sense of uh, creativity when it comes to, exactly, when it comes to making up a memory. And oftentimes, if my goal is to make something that feels good to me, or makes sense to me, it may not necessarily be the way how it actually happened. There's a lot of times where I've told jokes <laughs> and no one's laughed. And, <laughs> and I could just as easily forget those times and or remember them with laughs included. And now they're not so much bad uh, memories anymore. So there's a lot of things where you can edit or censor as you go back uh, and try to filter your memory. And it makes you as a very biased person when it comes to trying to write down things that you've remembered and expect people to take them literally. Um, uh, I found that reference now. Uh, it was Meredith, okay, it. Meredith Moran, that's M-A-R-A-N, her book, My Lie. Uh, she writes about the McMartin preschool trial where she and many other children underwent similar false memory constructions which with much less benign results than her mother's, which I talked about earlier in the in the article. In this trial, many parents had to defend themselves against the false memories that had been unintentionally implanted into trial. many preschoolers' minds, as well as uh, by well-meaning psychologists who were simply asking questions about the possibility of sexual abuse at home. So uh, it's, there's another book, an article by uh, Elizabeth Loftus called Creating False Memories, uh, that if the listeners has more interest in it, they can follow up that. Um, but it's it's a real thing. It's been around for at least 50 years that we've understood what was going on. 
but the beginnings of it, uh, where we started to understand it, was a real problem because we didn't know what was going on, and we thought these children were actually being abused when they weren't. Well, yeah, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, I don't want to get into the details of it, but uh, I'm aware of uh, in the 70s and 80s, uh, there was this big wave of uh, kind of how you describe uh, social workers, psychologists, a whole bunch of cases of those coming up. And um, there's no, there wasn't a reason for it. There wasn't a, it really happened and you're just trying to suppress it. It's just, you're young, you mm-hmm. have a, a mild imagination, you're very, very easy to influence. Mm-hmm. Right. Anyway, I interrupted you, Ty. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, um, Wombat, where were you going when I said, when I brought it, the article again? Sure. So um, this is a quick summary. It does seem that it's possible to construct new memories as well as misremember things. And between those two, it makes you a bit more skeptical with regard to the accuracy of the thing that you're trying to remember. So then the question then becomes, well then, hey, do we remember putting on pants this morning? Maybe not, but we're all wearing pants for the most part. At least I hope so. You guys are in another No, no, we, we have pants on. <laughs> that, that's our story, and we're sticking to it. Unless, unless it's no pants no. Monday. You know. So now here's something that we may not necessarily remember explicitly, but we definitely have proof of it existing. But we may also have the scenario where, hey, how many kids do you have? What color is your car? We can remember those things, and we can also demonstrate them to be true. But then where exactly do you put the line between, oh, it's a memory, we can't trust it, to it's a memory, we can also prove that it's true. Where should our skepticism be with regard to memories? Of... Okay, well, I'm going to look at this objectively. I'm not going to put any bias to it, what I want it to be, what I don't, what I want it not to be. I'm just going to observe it. But even then, uh, when something seems like something, but it goes against what you're hoping it will be, and it happens to be in a field that you were decently sure it wouldn't be, then I think even the most skeptical person can become uh, prey to... Uh, uh, subconsciously skewing how they think about it and uh, it's not saying it's the case but I think one should be wary of uh, yes make a good point and yes this might seem reasonable in certain circumstances however XYZ yada 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 and then look more into it more critically Um, but so I guess the, the the short end, the short winded of that is that it, it's it's a gray zone, I think, to, be, to not catch skepticism be, from becoming overly skeptic, I suppose. Well, a lot of it, I think, uh, has to do with the the believability <coughs> of the people who are using their memories to describe it to you. It's one thing to say I had a you know a white van pull into my driveway. You know, or somebody saying, you know, I had a silver UFO <laughs> pull into my driveway this morning. Uh, I mean, there's some problems there that that are on the face of it. The first one, you don't have you don't have anything to lose by agreeing and saying, okay, I believe that a white van pulled into your driveway. But on the second one, you know, you're having to buy a whole worldview with it. 
And when you're talking about religion, you're not only having to buy the worldview, but you're having to buy uh, the breaking of physical laws, um, the occurrence of miracles, the parting of seas, the flooding of the entire earth, et cetera, et cetera. And sure. also, they want you to pay ten percent of your income for your for the, to the church for life, <laughs> you know, and let That's and fall friend. under the the power of their preachers, uh, letting them dictate everything to you down to what you wear. I mean, it, it's it's a pretty pretty high price to pay when you say, okay, I do believe. The weird thing is, I can't think of anything more important than the question of what your fate will be of your soul, your humanity, etc. What I can't imagine anything more important than that kind of a decision that you have to make. And because it's so important, I can't imagine making any movements with regard to that decision if I don't have good reasons for the things that I believe in. So I'd like to have a good reason to assume something to be true before I make that assumption and then work with it to change my entire life, my worldview, my beliefs, how I treat other people, how I treat myself, etc. Um, and if I'm basing my conclusion based on an interpretation of a translation of a guy who wrote something based on a memory, of a guy who wrote something based on something that he may have seen, that puts me in a more shaky foundation than I would have otherwise. And it's something I think should be recognized because even if your conclusion stays the same, you should at least be aware that people make mistakes and that's totally fine. But because we do make mistakes, we should also levy the amount of uh, uh, how much their efforts can affect our lives. You, we should be willing to draw a line in the sand. And I think it's important to be able to understand that because memory is faulty, because memory can be constructed, maybe we shouldn't take interpretations or written gospels based on the memories of saints who've seen things to be absolutely, literally true. 100%. Well, uh, I was just going to say, I think that's why Pascal's wager is so particularly uh, insidious, is because it plays into that well-what-if scenario, and it's, and it's dangerous, I think, if you give it too much credence. But then when you step back and start deconstructing it, I think it runs into the very same uh, kind of saving throw there that you just mentioned there. That, um, well, first of all, just before taking the claim, where did it get the claim from, and how do they know that claim is true, and so on and so on. And uh, and even then, if something can be avoided, some say indoctrination, ideally, if something can be avoided indoctrination, and say you're in your adulthood, and someone tells you, let me tell you about, you know, uh, Krishna or, or uh, Yahweh or, or whatever, um, at that point, hopefully you would have had been able to develop enough critical thinking skills um, to assess a claim and, and, and basically vet its you know, veracity. Um, but even if you don't go through all that, that process, if you just take on hand uh, what value does this have in the greater scheme, and is it true, or do I think it's true, and what can I measurably effect now. I mean, if I pinch myself, does it hurt? You know, if I pinch someone else, will it hurt them? You know, the basis of morality, your empathy. Um, but if you go through this process and whoever's trying to just say Jehovah's Witness or something, it, and it's, it's like you're talking past each other. You can't, you can't breach the level of, uh, of rationale where you both see what you're both talking about. And, uh, 
So I think it becomes easier to just dismiss unless there's uh, irrefutable uh, evidence. Well, not only that, but one of the first things that the religious people would do when they talk to you about things and miracles and, and memories of the apostles and all that uh, is say, if you have any question with it, don't question it. <laughs> you yeah. Know, you know, uh, you, you, if you have any criticism about it, then you need to put that aside and have faith and just believe it anyway. Believe it not only uh, because uh, it, you know so much is at stake; your entire afterlife is at stake. But simply because it's not allowed to to question it. Um, I was listening to a podcast this this weekend on um, I think it was Atheist Experience, and they they were talking about uh, one of their members being in a youth group, and the youth minister told them, you know, if you don't believe it, uh, no, he says. Here's this information. He gives them all this information about you know, resurrection and all that stuff. And he says, now, you can't question it because it's from God. I mean, literally saying they should not question what he just told them. And how much of that is going down, you know, church to church all over America and all over the world? It's very common. We had something like that even when I was growing up in the youth group. So it's not, un- it's not an uncommon thing to hear. Uh, or just not only that, but say it's not explicitly stated just the open criticism of hey that doesn't sound accurate can cause a lot of you know mean looks in your direction or could actually ostracize you from the small community well, sure. trying to establish yeah. keep yourself there. and that's one of the reasons you, why they they preach it so much to the young and uh, too young mm-hmm. and so that they won't even if they they won't question it and if they do question it they can use the authority of the the adult to quell it and without question just tell them don't sure. question it by doing that you in, you ensure a facade of of certainty 100% and in contrast what you see with science is uh, complete opposite. You'll have people who are are waking up excited for the opportunity to prove someone else to be wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. That's, and it's just this constant one-upmanship. But because of that, you have people who are very tentative with what they say, make sure that they don't overstate anything that they have in their claims. If they do, they get uh, completely torn apart in the public eye. So they're very, very delicate with what they say. They'll build an, a giant, a giant, huge, large hologram collider that smashes particles together. And when people ask, what'd you guys make? They're like, uh, we're still figuring it out. Well, <laughs> we saw a nice little peek on something. We don't know yet. We'll figure it out. It's like, what are you spending all this money for? We'll, we'll come to you with a conclusion. Anyway, though, uh, we are almost at the bottom of the hour, right? Yeah. Um, we should go ahead and take a break. I've got everything ready, I think, except for uh, the song that I want to use. Um, however, um, I did want to mention one thing. Um, if I can remember what it was. <laughs> if you can remember it. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay. may look quite finely tuned, but really this is something you've assumed. A better explanation's cosmological inflation, so we find the theologically marooned. The complexity of life is not a godly sign. The creatures that we see exhibit bad design. It's the only resolution. It was caused by evolution, so we're on to look at the couple of things to find. The 
there is no point to prayer. Your God doesn't work his magic for anyone, anywhere. There's no one listening in to confessions of your sin, and it's almost certain that there's no one there. We do not follow scriptural morality We like to base our ethics in reality So we really do not mind If you find you are inclined To have a go at homosexuality Believing things on faith will never mean they're true You've got to think it through with reasoning And an unbiased view There is no dispensation for your extraordinary dedication So that's something else we got wrong too Oh, you yeah, think you're being logical, but you're not at all. You're condescending, and it leaves me totally appalled. So we've come to the conclusion that you're deep in a delusion. And there probably isn't a God after all. And we're back. Uh, this is Digital Free Thought Radio Hour, uh, 103.9 LPFM here in Knoxville, Tennessee. Welcome back. Um, first, I'd like to talk a little bit about the atheist groups here in Knoxville. Um, we have first the Atheist Society of Knoxville, founded in 2002, it's now 15 years old. It has almost 700 members in it. You can find it online at knoxvilleatheist.org. You can join them at their meetup in person at West Hills Flats and Taps near Westtown Mall. We meet for happy hour and food every Tuesday uh, for, that would be around 5.30 to about 7.30 or 8. Everybody's welcome. As long as you don't preach, proselytize, provoke, or punch. Thank you, Matt Dillahunty. And then there's the Rationalists of East Tennessee. They've been around for about 20 years. RET has bi-weekly presentations and discussions on the Pellissippi State Campus near Hardin Valley Road. They meet the first and third Sunday in the Goins Administration Building Cafeteria Annex. Just follow the signs. Or if that's too complicated, go to the website, rationalist.org, and click on Directions. Then there's also the Sunday Assembly, which started in England just a few years ago and now spread around the world. It's a church, but it's a no-God church. A no-God church setting for those who have had enough of religion but still like the fellowship of a church-type gathering. It meets at the International Building downtown near the fairgrounds, and that's on the fourth Sunday of every month. Just once a month, the fourth Sunday. Uh, those nice people in Madison, Wisconsin, the Freedom of Religion Foundation, Freedom from Religion Foundation, that is, uh, has a local chapter that's opened up just recently, and they meet at uh, Earth Fair at Turkey Creek, uh, the 7 o'clock and the, every third Wednesday, or the third Wednesday of the month, that is, 7 o'clock, Earth Fair, Turkey Creek. And then there's the Secular Student Alliance, which is programs that help give camaraderie and community to any free-thinking high school or college student who would like to be involved in the free thought movement or just find secular companionship in the Bible Belt. Go online, do a search for Secular Student Alliance. You can also go on Facebook and search for it, as they have some of their groups uh, online in Facebook. If you have a community event and would like to have a public announcement uh, played on WOZO Radio, just create an MP3 file to reflect that event, then contact us via our website, WOZO Radio, to arrange for it to be played in rotation. And we're back to the show now. Our topic is uh, memories and miracles, basically, false memories, how memories are made and how reliable they are. And I have, a, I think, a pretty good example in my, from my own life about that. 
My mother, uh, when she was a very young child, say seven or eight, went swimming in one of the creeks in her West Tennessee uh, home area. And uh, she got a cramp real bad, uh, was floundering, went under two or three times, and her foot hit a root. Uh, and she was able to get up on that root and get out of the creek and save her life. Well, this was, you know, she was surrounded by uh, church people because they had just gotten out of church. And, of course, she, when she related the, the story, oh, they said, oh, your foot didn't just hit the root. Jesus moved your foot to that root. And, of course, it didn't take long for her to internalize that, and she told that story for the rest of her life, also telling how she actually saw Jesus move her foot to the root so that she could save her life to do Jesus' work later on in, in her own life. So uh, this this has many different applications or, or consequences in her life. One, think about how important it made her feel, that Jesus actually came down to save her life personally, the creator of the universe came to West Tennessee small town in 1920 or 30 to save this young girl for, for her work to be done later on. But, I mean, you can see how easy it is for this, this memory to be adjusted by the adults around her and how she, every time she thought about it, she could embellish it herself in her own mind and in her dreams and in her sleeping state. So that when she, by the time she got to be an adult, she had a fully fleshed out, uh, incredibly important uh, experience where God took a, a, a special interest in her life enough to save her. Um, is that the kind of thing that uh, you were talking about a little earlier there, Wombat? Exactly. I think that's a, uh, a perfect example of just taking a story and internalizing it such that when you're left with is something that's not necessarily accurate with reality anymore, but is a really, really nice thing to remember. Maybe it's something that makes you feel really comfortable, but it's not necessarily something true. Um, I actually thought of a really cool, to, to take that one step further, I thought of a really cool example that anyone who's listening to this can do. Um, if you have time, write yourself a very short story of a person who visits a grocery store. And you can, you can have that person go down all the aisles, see the things that they like, maybe have a quick conversation with one of the people that are in the store, and then they have a nice little shopping list, and they check out all the stuff, and then they finally put it back in the car, and they go back home. And that's the story that you can just write up. Then, after that, write down in as much detail as possible the last time you went grocery shopping. And if it's literally something that you just did, maybe give yourself about a week, maybe the second to the last time you went grocery shopping. And you hopefully should notice that the number of details that you have available to you when you're trying to pull from an actual event that happened are much fewer compared to when you're just creating a story as you go. Um, suddenly, the conversations that you may have had or may not have had, the word choices that you were thinking of, the mood that you were thinking of, the, the exact items of things that you bought, they certainly start to become less of a thing that you can just easily grab from uh, a memory that you constructed and have to actually be from something that actually occurred and put down on paper. It's much harder to do. Um, as a result, you would find that the story that you have based on reality is probably much shorter, much more closer to the facts, maybe written more like a newspaper edited, if anything, compared to the more flowery short story that you wrote when you're able to use your imagination freely. And when you look at things like the Bible story, for example, 
here you have a very, very nice description of like the events, the people that are there, miracles that are being performed, uh, people talking in, in quotation verbatim speeches of very prominent figures. Uh, the foods that they're eating at the times, maybe short conversations they're having be between some of Jesus's followers, the places that they're going. It's a lot of details that are thrown in, in in such a way that it almost mirrors the concept of a person just writing it down freely compared to something that's being drawn from an actual event that occurred. Um, at least it mirrors that. Um, it's more, in my mind, uh, an alarm in my skepticism than it is a declaration that is in fact fake. It's just something that it seems that it's written in such a way that it seems like it would be more of a construction than it would be a retelling of something that accurately happened. Well, it just reminds me of uh, similar experiences when I was growing up. I wasn't necessarily told by people that's what it was, but uh, because of a lot of uh, Christian imagery growing up, I had just categorizes this is this and this is that and uh, some fairly traumatic experiences though in hindsight looking differently uh, there was these there were these uh, houses that people go to right they put them all together they'll go through uh, living a life of sin whatever you die go to the next group and they have a heaven section they have a hell section they, you know so and so and so the house is right I was in the uh I was in the uh, the Pearly Gate section. That's the part I was going to. This is long ago. And I was one of the uh, angels there. And, uh, you know, at the end of it, you go through it yourself after you're done volunteering and everything. And things like that distort uh, your experiences, I think. They, uh, they heighten them. Right, they, they, they heighten them. And then you think... They make me think, well, surely I remember this happened, and this happened, and that happened. Uh, but it's compounded by fear. And uh, any time I think there's fear involved, you're, you're not going to think as coherently as you would without. Because it's going to be driving what the body wants to remember to preserve your own sanity. So I think that's a factor of it. Yeah, uh, true, and especially if you're, it's a religious thing, and, and people are telling you to squelch your skepticism Trial. about it uh, just by using faith. Uh, that you have to have faith to to believe what they're telling you, which they can't even be sure because of the faultiness of the memory. But once they get the the thing out, then they they want you to have faith. You know, squelch your skepticism about it and just believe it anyway. Squelch your skepticism. That's the second time. I like that phrase. <laughs> I would say this, though. What if they had a point? What if they had a point that you, you maybe you have too much skepticism going on that you're not allowing yourself to be open to the possibility of them even being right? Maybe you're discrediting them at face value. Isn't that a danger, too? There are points that uh, morals that can stand on their own no matter what the story is. I mean, you can say the story is false, but it represents the, the moral or the, the fact itself, and the fact can stand sure. on its own. Uh, of course, in, in the Bible, Jesus uses parables all the time to do that. doesn't necessarily mean the parables are true, but, um, of course, the believer would think that it was true or try to tell you that it was true uh, simply for the fact that it was in the Bible. 
So what are you saying is that we could agree with the overall message of some of the things that were discussed in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but the retelling of it as an actual literal event that happened verbatim may not necessarily need to be trusted as true, but we can take the overall message home. And my my thing is, my point is that it doesn't have to have happened that way. You can take it that way, uh, and you can you can say this carries the the message uh, pretty well in the story, so that the message itself is given to you. And uh, I mean, think of all the German um, what Mother Goose rhymes and and. Yeah. Um, Swedish tales. Uh, Swedish. They're a lot darker than we Yeah, they're a lot darker than remember, but they have morals, and the morals stand on their own. We don't necessarily have to believe them. Uh, one thing that's that's kind of funny that always stood out to me is that uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was alone, and uh, yet it was the story of every word that was said is, is in the Bible. You know, who took those notes? I mean, that. Uh, he really didn't have a chance to write it down himself. Even if he could write, we don't know that he could, because he was taken that night and, and crucified the next day. But we have this very detailed account of what, what went on when he was alone in the garden. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's as if there's some kind of uh, like invisible, like some kind of hidden cam in the, you know the trees or something, <laughs> and you know just this kind of stuff gets relayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, to Paul, you know, many, many, many years later, and oh, of course, that's what happened, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just overlooked, I think, a lot. So I do have some issues with the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, if, since we've been talking about it for a while. Um, even if someone, even if I weren't to take that story literally, I would still have some issues with regard to, you know, Jesus's views on thinking or lust being the same thing as adultery, or his views on divorce practices, how uh, anyone who marries a divorced lady is committing adultery. Things, an eye for an eye, for example, you probably heard of that. That's from the Sermon on the Mount. That's, uh, that's Matthew chapter 5, verses 38, uh, I think through 42. Uh, we've heard that a lot of times, and I don't necessarily agree with that all the time. It doesn't sound like a... Be- <laughs> it's actually... Is it out of context? It's actually... Well, go for it. I'd like to hear your... Well, sorry. I, I didn't interrupt there. It's just the eye for eye uh, is... Uh, I forget exactly how it goes, but I do remember that it's not an eye for an eye is proper. It's something along the lines of an eye, is, eye for an eye is not the way. Um, for vengeance, vengeance's mind goes on to it later on. Uh, but it's basically talking about eventually turning the other cheek and... Uh, that gets thrown in a different kind of context of what? Do you want them to hit you, or are you just giving them clemency to hit you again? I mean, how do you take it? Uh, but okay. The, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. I hear you. I hear you. My my issue wasn't so much. W- uh, so you're absolutely right. Let me let's let me back up a bit. Uh, so an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is uh, a part of the Sermon on the Mount that was referenced as. Hey, you may have heard that this thing called an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I have a much better strategy for how to get along with people. That's if if they ever hit you on one side of your face, you turn your other cheek and let them hit you on the other side. And that should be like the new standard. And it's very, it's like, it's promoting peace above all things. But the whole concept that I had an issue with is that for the most part, Jesus came and made it explicitly clear that he's not here to change the rules of past 
uh, laws that have occurred. He says, what belongs to Caesar belongs to Caesar. What belongs to God belongs to God. I'm not here to change any laws. He's even the same person who says, slave obey your masters, you know? So he's not here to make anything improve in terms of improvement, in terms of uh, uh, producing new rules for us to get along with each other. Yet, he's able to break that rule and come up with this new concept of saying, hey, you may have heard of that old law. No, 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 no. Here's version 2.0. It's like, well, it's great that you can update laws, but when are you going to update things on slavery? When will you update things on rape culture? When will you update on uh, the divorce practices or abuse against homosexuals? All those things he stays mute on, but he's able to make a comment on that. And that's really where my, uh, my ire comes from with regard to that. But I would say... In, in essence, his concept of loving your enemies has uh, a compelling uh, notion with me, and I, and I appreciate that sentiment. I don't think that I would have to take the Bible literally with regard to that speech in order for me to take that message home and move on with my life. So as far as a memory, these things do stand out. Like, so like if someone was writing down, they could hit these heavy points, and then more or less you can walk away with the overall message. But... You don't necessarily have to take the whole thing at literal face value in order to do that. And maybe that's the point. Well, I, I don't know. This, uh, this eye, um, not eye for an eye, but turning the other cheek, uh, has always been a kind of a sore point for me. Uh, it makes mm. you into a victim. And, it, and it, uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier before the air, uh, but uh, Christianity has a thing in it where um, you forgive the person who trespasses against you, which is okay up to a point. But then uh, you have a you have a, a problem with people getting away with stuff. You have people right. uh, trespassing against you, doing physical or ver- verbal abuse to you, and getting away scot free um, because God tells you to forgive them. Or and how many times have people not press charges, you know, to against somebody mm-hmm. who has physically or verbally abused them, only for that person to walk away and go do it against uh, against somebody else. Um, if you're a wife that gets beaten by her your spouse, how many times do you let your your significant other abuse you before you call the police or seek help for yourself? And on a national scale, uh, if we just turn the other cheek, um, you know, Hitler would still or his minions would still be out there killing people. Uh, you've got to fight back. You've got to protect your own uh, your own people, your own interests, uh, your own. I mean, if you've got a society that uh, uses uh, love as a uh, um, currency, basically, to promote its society, and then you have a a society that moves in next to you that doesn't, how long will the first society live? You know, if they turn the cheek every time the other society um, trespassed against them or um, uh, uh, used aggression against them. Um, it's only sure. to a point. I mean, we give it lip service in our cor- in our country, but we don't generally do that when when a, another company, another company, another country um, makes an aggressive stance toward us. We reply in kind and still call ourselves a Christian nation. It's it's a good idea when you can do it, but we pretty mm. quickly drop the idea when it's not feasible. So, is this the case? Is the Sermon on the Mount is written by? People who may have constructed the speech from memory, from a position of, well, I'm a man, and we live in a pretty stable country right now, but we want to look like we're a lot nicer than we normally are. (laughs) So we'll rewrite this as we see fit, 
where we make ourselves sound good and nice and the victim. The Bible in a lot of parts are written by people who are constructing good memories from a sense of this is how I want to feel about this rather than this is how it actually happened. Right. Or simply creating what they want out of whole cloth. There's, there's got to be a, a portion of that going on. Well, you know, also, yeah. Oh, also, all these things that we're talking about, they require thought. They require contemplation. They require deliberation. They require delineation. Uh, you know, it's easy just to just to take a broad brush and say, do this, life will be easy. You know, it's like that message that you might hear so often. Oh, I've got the magic drink. I've got the magic drink. Uh, it's, it's the representation of the truth. Take it, all your ills will be solved. Mm-hmm. But it's not that simple. Life is complicated. I mean, how does a country even become, how does a nation even become, a station? How do these boundaries form? There's all these intricate parts of sociopolitical dialogue that uh, people just don't engage in favor of saying, well, just follow this one simple rule and everything will be okay. Yeah, and I guess platitudes can be nice to to form generalized uh, values uh, for going by, uh, things you identify with that uh, make things, I think, better for everyone in general, ideally. That's what I would like to see it as better for everyone. But it's not that simple. So, uh, Data 5 was talking about uh, do all these things and everything will be okay. That's really a naive take on it. Um, There's a lot of nuances that go into the intricacies of 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 life and people and, and boundaries and what is right, what is wrong. So it just it's one of the telltale signs for me at least that if just something has a has a coverall, eh it's kinda harder to buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so rant there, sorry. <laughs> Can I add one more thing? I'd like to take a step back from like what I was saying earlier in that I'm not saying that it's true that it was completely written with just the incentive nature of making Christians look good by people who weren't, who don't care about being accurate, but are just writing down whatever they wanted. But I am saying that between the idea of someone writing down something that they feel makes them feel good and put Christianity in a good light, regardless of whether it happened or not, versus Someone sitting down in front of Jesus with an ink feather and parchment from Mesopotamia era and writing down everything in ancient Hebrew verbatim, whatever comes out of Jesus' mouth. Between those two things, one seems way more likely to me. And even if it wasn't the case of a stenographer, an ancient stenographer, just the concept of someone memorizing something that occurred a very, very long time ago, even if they heard it a hundred times, still strikes me as a less uh, a scenario that's that I have less confidence in compared to someone who is just writing something in the best rounded up version of whatever you could surmise and put Christianity in a good light. I mean you can even test it nowadays just take somebody have them read the sermon on their mound go home and, and write it down and see how much differences there are there I mean this Shoot, have people have people write down the Ten Commandments verbatim and see how many they get right in and what order they get them in. Especially when yeah. it's only heard one time. <laughs> I mean, we, how many times have we heard the Ten Commandments? We still can't remember. 
Yeah, exactly. Or the Pledge of Allegiance. Like, some things are a little harder than, like, or the lyrics for our national anthem. How many people can, like, with a pen and paper, write them all down, all the uh, verses down verbatim? It's very hard to do, and you can hear it a hundred times, but after even a year, all of that stuff goes away. I can't tell you how many classes I've had that I don't remember things that are intricate because I just haven't been around it enough. It's just human nature to forget things or to have a malleable memory where you feel like you remembered it, but you actually don't. Right. Well, I mean, the core part of memory itself, right? You have different levels of memory. Uh, some things are categorized as surfaced, you know, they get washed out when you, some, when you sleep and so on and so on, and others go into your core memory. And the level of stress and emotional height at the time of making those memories, of course, make a lasting bond and they become more and more indelible over time uh, with the frequency of rem- rem- thinking about it. Uh, what is it? Uh, uh, Daniel, the philosopher, Daniel Dennett, Daniel Dennett mm-hmm. talks about, uh, I paraphrase, every time you say something, you create a copy of what you just said. Mm-hmm. Make a copy of every time you just said, he goes on, yeah, it's kind of a kind of thing. He says it about five times. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, that's what it comes down to. So over time, it makes sense that you would uh, forget things that... That it, weren't repeated. Yeah, and no, partially, I think partially is because you rely upon, oh, the pledge will be said every day, therefore, you know, I can just, it's not, it'll, you know, wash out. We have about a minute left in the show. Um, any final words, Rip? Uh, be well, do good, think critically. That works. Wombat? Uh, no one's perfect, and that includes our memories. So be careful with what you dedicate your entire life to, especially if it's claimed to be a written-down event based on someone's memory of that event happening. You should use some more common sense, do some more research, and think more uh, intricately about the things that you dedicate your life to. It's so true. Um, going back to my mother's um, story, uh, not only did you know she have the preacher right there to tell her that her foot didn't go by itself to the root, think about all the people in authority that would nod their head and agree with her whenever she she related the story up through her entire life. Uh, this is what a lot of the children are facing these days. You know, they hear all these stories to begin with, and everybody from the the trial cop on the story uh, on the corner to the president of the United States, including all all politicians at every level, the school teacher, the school board, everybody in their life is is repeating these stories to her and telling her or telling children that yes, it's all true. You have to believe it, and if you don't, you know the price. But I'm here to tell you, you don't have to worry about that price because everybody's going to somebody else's hell. (laughs) Don't worry about it. The time to worry about it is when we can prove that souls exist and we never have. We'll see you next week, this Digital Free Thought Radio Hour. I'm Dotter Five. Riv. And who's that out there? I'm the Wombat! (laughs) (laughs) And we'll see you next week. (laughs) Just in time.
listening to Digital Free Thought Radio Hour. W-O-C-O-L-P, Knoxville. 